Hello and welcome. You're listening to Lore and Legend with your host Rick Scott, bringing you legendary tales inspired by the rich traditions of world folklore and mythology. Today, we're joined by our guest storyteller, Graham Langley. Graham is a performance storyteller and a storytelling event organiser. Based in Birmingham in the West Midlands, Graham offers his services to the whole of the country as well as abroad. With a unique flair for imagination and adventure, he brings storytelling to life through his work with schools, libraries and museums. Performing in clubs and festivals, he brings his homegrown Birmingham style to each event. As well as performing and organising storytelling performances, Graham takes pride in training storytellers, offering advice and guidance to those who look to give stories to others. Together with Pam Bishop, Graham has also run the traditional arts team for 20 years since the year 2000. The Trad Arts team exists to promote top quality traditional folk music and storytelling to venues across the Midlands and to share their passion about traditional music, songs, dances and stories. They've done this by facilitating a wide range of events and workshops for their audiences, as well as bringing in guest musicians and storytellers from the UK folk scene. In the past, they've played a key role in organising and running Birmingham's Martineau Storytelling Festival, the Young Storyteller of the Year competition, and the Slaying the Dragon Festival. Now, this was actually an interview which we recorded fairly early on last year when I still had a lot to learn about getting the best quality recordings, so please do excuse a few hiccups in the audio quality on this one. Graham was kind enough to share a variety of stories with us for this interview. We begin with a favourite of mine, which I heard Graham tell at the Birmingham Story Club Tales and Ales. This is Turandot, a love story which comes to us out of the Persian storytelling cycle known as the Seven Portraits. I've done this for ages. Uh, I used... To, okay. I used to tell this story with Catrice Horsley, and we developed it as a, as a duet storytelling, uh, improvised duet storytelling. And yeah, for fun with it. I have told it on my own since then, but I haven't told this for a long, long time. There was once this girl, and this girl was beautiful. She was tall, she was elegant. Lovely looking face, hair, dark black hair that hung down her back, lovely figure. And if that wasn't enough, this girl was also bright, studious, intelligent. She loved literature, she loved science, and she loved exploring all sorts of ideas, including the black arts. And if that wasn't enough, she was also a fabulous artist, could paint beautifully. And if that wasn't enough, she was the daughter of a king. She was a princess. I mean, this girl had just everything in her life that anyone could ever possibly want. But from a father's point of view, such a beautiful, talented daughter wasn't enough. And he expected her to get married. It, it, it was part, of course, it was an expectation. He was a, as a king that his daughter would marry and, and enhance the kingdom. Um, 
And frankly, she wasn't interested. She wasn't interested in blanks. You know, she had, she, she loved her studying, she loved her art, she loved the activity and the construction of things, and she wasn't bothered about blokes. And one day, one morning, her father's there in the bathroom looking into the mirror, and he saw the greyness of his hair, and he saw the wrinkles in his face, and he realised that his eyes didn't have the clarity of vision that they used to have. And basically, he realised he was getting old. And uh, and uh, he had no son, so his daughter was going to be the one that would provide the heir for the family line. And, uh, she really should get married. So he spoke to her about it. He said, look, you really should get married. I need you to get married. Uh, 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 then, then you know, you, you can have a family and a, and a, and a family line up in there. He said, uh, uh, I know we, we, we've had this sort of discussion before, but will you think about it? And she says, yes, Father, I'll think about it. And in order to really contemplate and give it deep thought, she, she went away for a few days. One or two servants uh, to take with her, maybe a best friend. And they went and they hung out somewhere for a few days. And when she came back, she, she said to her father, Father, she said, uh, I've, I've, I've made a choice. I've decided I won't get married. Uh, I would like you to build for me a small palace of my own. And she took him to the window and she pointed across the valley. And she said, I would like a palace over there on the other side of the valley facing your palace. And there I can live my life in the way that I want it to. Now, her father was disappointed. I mean, he had given her the choice, and this wasn't what he meant, really, about choice. He, he meant choose who you like, but that's not what he'd said. He'd said, you must choose, and this is what you've chosen, and he honoured that. And so he had a, a, a road dug up the side. He said, okay, I'll tell you what we'll do. He said, well, we'll turn it into a bit of a competition then. We'll give them a challenge. The challenge will be anyone who can uh, approach the door of my palace, anyone who can gain entrance to the palace, and anyone who can answer a question that I give them. Any man who can do that, I'll marry him. So I thought, I thought oh, that, that was a good enough deal. So that was announced to the whole world. And... and um, uh, and she had her doorway sealed off, bricked up, and she designed and had built a secret doorway in the wall of the palace. She designed and had made six mechanical warriors, and she placed them along the path, and she thought, well, no one's going to get past them. But, you know, a princess... In a, a beautiful princess is one thing. A beautiful princess uh, alone in a palace is another. A beautiful princess alone in a palace and a challenge. Well, now we've got every hot-blooded bloke for miles wanting to uh, uh, gain the, the hand of the princess. So the first you know, young knight or prince was there uh, the, at the end of the path, sword in hand, 
walking along the path towards the first mechanical warrior, sword in hand, keeping his eye on that mechanical warrior, and something happened beneath his foot, and suddenly there was a click and a whir, and the sword of the warrior swept round and whipped off the bloke's head, and a spear plunged out straight through his body. Well, the girl took the head and she hung it outside the gates. And alongside it, she hung a picture of herself. A picture that she deliberately painted on silk. And this silk picture hung outside the gates, wafting and moving and billowing in the wind. And then she thought, well, you know, that'll, that'll solve it. Nobody else is going to come along. But of course, you know, this first bloke, he was a twerp. He didn't know what he was doing. No time, there's another guy there. Off came his head, out came the spear. Uh, again and again that happened until there were heads forming a frame you know, two-thirds of the way around this picture. And then when that was the situation, along came this young guy. This young guy had been on a travelling around, having a year out, seeing a bit of the world, meeting some people. It stayed and had a really good time and become very friendly with a wise old hermit. And then he rocked up at this town. Uh, and there was the picture of the princess. And he, he barely noticed the frame of heads. He just saw the princess. He just saw this fabulously beautiful woman. And he fell on his knees just staring and looking at her. And with every breath he was taking, falling in love with her. He stayed there in the hot sun throughout the afternoon. And as the sun went down and the evening began to cool, he went into the town. And he asked and he inquired about the picture and, and the girl and everybody told him what was going on and all about these heads and the dead men and so on. And he realised that this was going to be no easy task. Uh, and he realised that he would have to box clever if he was going to achieve anything. So he went back to visit this wise hermit to learn about the wiles of women. Uh, and he spent, he spent a whole year there. He spent a whole year learning about the wiles of women and the wisdom of men. And, uh, he, he could understand something about the wild, the wisdom of men, but the wiles of women he never did quite actually get. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, the tenth point when he would return back to the town and, and the, the, uh, wise man gave him a few gifts and things that he thought he might need. Uh, yeah, off he went with his backpack, back to the town. More heads had been added to this uh, frame of heads. The young man didn't have a sword. In fact, he kicked off his shoes. And he stood in the soft sand at the head of the track. And he started to walk along the track. And as he walked towards that first warrior, he wasn't looking with his eyes. He was looking with all of his senses. He was looking with his ears. He was looking with his sense of touch. 
and he stepped on something hard beneath the sand, and he heard a click and a whir, and round swung the sword, but he dived and twisted and turned, and the sword swung across into midair, and the spear plunged out into nothing. So he got past the first warrior. In the same way, he got past the second and the third, and all the way to the door of the castle. Now, a servant had watched his progress along the path, and now she went to the princess and said, and, hey, princess, there's a, there's a guy who's walked along the path and gone straight past each of the mechanical warriors. And so the princess went and looked out of the window and she could see the young man, nice-looking young man, standing looking at the walls of the palace. And uh, she was quite confident she wouldn't be able to find the secret entrance, so she went back to what she was doing. And no sooner had she sat down than she heard the sound of the beating of a drum. And a bit intrigued, she went and she looked, and she saw the man, a little way from the walls of the palace, walking slowly, beating away at this drum. And she was a bit intrigued by this, and she followed his course around the palace, moving from one window to another, and at one point, as he was just going around the corner, and she leaned forward quite a bit, and that movement, he just caught it in the corner of his eye, and he glanced up, and he caught her eye, and quickly she, she dodged back, embarrassed to have been seen. And uh, uh, he, he, she went and immediately went to get busy herself back with work. He carried on beating, and carried on beating, and carried on, and then the sound stopped. Because, again, he'd been using all of his senses. He hadn't been looking with his eyes. He'd been looking with his ears. He'd been listening to the resonant echo of the drum as it was coming back from the wall. And at some point, there was a change in that resonance. There was a change in that echo. So he knew there was something different here at this point of the wall. And when he examined the wall, he found a tiny crack. And with a little pen knife, he edged it down the crack until he found some sort of catch and clicked it and the door opened. Now he was inside the palace. Well, the great consternation in the palace. Uh, she, she instructed her servants to sit him in a room to wait for her. She went and she, uh, she straightened her hair and put on some nice bit of dress and, and, uh, and wondering what question. She never thought of question. Um, but it so happened that she had a pearl, quite a large and beautiful pearl, that had been given to her by her grandfather. And it was there on her dressing table. And she saw, saw the pearl, and that gave her an idea. So she took the pearl in her hand. She went down the little corridor towards the room where the young man was. Um, she stood for a moment outside the room and just composed herself, calmed herself down, pearl in hand. And she quietly opened the door and walked into the room. And the young man stood immediately, a bit flustered, and wondering what to say and what to do. And she walked across the room. And she opened up her hand. And she said, What do you make of this? And a little smile flickered on the young man's lips. And he took her and he said, I make much of this. 
and he turned and walked away. And she was left there, wondering what on earth was going on. Well, he went into town, and uh, he, ex he, he exchanged some, uh, some, some jewels and some money that he got, because in those days, you know, you couldn't travel with a travel card, with a Barclay card, so he was, uh, he, he had to carry all his wealth in some sort of trunk. So he went to the jewellers, and he, he bought two pearls that were exactly the same weight as the pearl that she'd given him. One of the things the hermit had given, in fact, was a little set of scales, and he weighed them, and he got these two pearls, and, uh, he, 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 so he went back, went back to her palace, and uh, now she was quite excited to see what was, that, what was going on, what on earth was he doing? Anyway, he came back, and she came into the room again, and now she was just like a bit, a little bit disconcerted, and he went up to her, and he took hold of her hand, and into her hand he put the two pearls, the two pearls that weighed exactly the same as the other pearls. And this time, a little smile flickered on her lips. And she went and she got a mortar and pestle, and she put those pearls in and started to crush and grind them, grinding round and round and round until there were nothing but dust. And she took his hand and she poured the pounded dust of the pearls into his palm. And uh, he looked at that, <laughs> the ruined pearls, and he said, could I have a glass of milk? She's the princess, she doesn't give glasses of milk, but she ordered her servants to, to get a glass of milk. And he got the milk and he put the the ground up pearl into the milk and he placed it on the window ledge for a little while. And after a little while, all of the sediment settled into the base of the glass. And then he lifted the glass and said to her, Drink the milk. And so she drank the milk. And all that was left was the sediment. And he poured the sediment onto a bit of parchment and set it there to dry. And when things all dry, he put that sediment onto his little scales. And he put her original pearl onto the other side of the scales. And it balanced absolutely and perfectly. Now there was a real smile on her face. And she took her ring from her finger. And she gave it to him. And he looked at the ring, her ring, that she had given to him. And he closed his hand around it and turned round and walked away. She had just given him her ring. She would just given him the symbol of herself. And he had turned his back on her. And he went into town. He went back to the jeweller. And he had um, that ring and his ring fitted onto a golden chain. And he took that golden chain back to her. 
and he placed it around her neck, fixed the clasp, they, and they kissed and they agreed to marry. And she'd enjoyed that game. They both had such a great game. And they both understood the meanings of everything that had gone on in that game. He knew that when, he, when she gave him that one pearl, she was saying, love lasts a lifetime. But then he gave back to her the answer that said, but our love will last two lifetimes, this lifetime and the life after. But then she'd taken their love and she'd broken it and crushed it and damaged it and diminished it. But he had shown to her that however much their love was damaged, it would never actually be diminished. And that's when she realised that this was a man that she could marry. And so she gave him her ring and he had taken it and set it on the chain. And a few days later, there was a wedding. And it was the best and most fantastic wedding that town had ever seen. The wedding lasted for three days and nights. And there was the most fabulous food and drink. And there was singing and dancing and musicians and storytellers. And even the storytellers got paid a good fee. And I know because I was one of those storytellers. During a three-year sojourn away from the city of Sheffield, I myself worked in Birmingham. One of the first things I did was to attend one of Graham's storytelling workshops, literally the day that I first visited the city to look for a room to rent. Over the course of the next three years, I regularly attended Graham's storytelling gymnasium and performed together with Graham and his other students at cafe events, museums, parks, fairs and festival events across Birmingham and the Midlands. And we did that together as a group called the Storytelling Studio. As you might have expected then, Graham has had a huge influence on my own development as a storyteller. And I invited him on the show to talk about his own career, his work as a children's storyteller in hospitals, and the traditional character of the storytelling supported by the traditional arts team. As always, I started by asking Graham where his journey with storytelling first began. Well, really, it was uh, for me to get into storytelling, it started in about 1970, sometime between 1970 and 1972, when Catherine Briggs published her book of the uh, um, Dictionary of English Folktale. And um, at that time, I was working with a group of people running a folk club downtown in Birmingham, the Greycock Folk Club. And Catherine Briggs came to Birmingham to do, I guess, what we would now call a, a, a bit of a book launch. Uh, and But anyway, she, she came and she did uh, a lecture. And, um, along with other people from our club, we went along. And, um, and she was, she had her books for sale, which I couldn't afford at the time, but somebody else, others bought them. Um, but then, inspired by that, we started doing stories at our folk club. So, as well as doing traditional songs at the folk club, one or two of us started doing traditional stories as well. 
So that's how I can pretty much date my earliest storytelling to just after the publication of uh, Catherine Briggs' book. That's cool. Um, what what kind of stories did you tell back then? Well, two two immediately there were two sorts of stories that I would tell. Uh, one was stories that I copied from Catherine Briggs because uh, in addition to listening to the, to the songs and the stories, we recorded everything because we worked with this guy, Charles Parker, a radio producer, and his process was just to record everything. So Catherine Briggs' uh, talk was recorded. And in, during the talk, she told several stories. So one of them was actually Charles Rowland. Uh, another one was Mr. Fox. Uh, and so I stole both of those straight away. The other thing that I, because I was interested in local Midlands songs and broadsides, I uh, started looking for local Midlands stories. And you don't have to go far uh, into the black country before you start running across Anok and Ali stories. There's a whole host of stories about these two characters Anok and Ali in the black country. And sometimes they appear to be completely foolish. Sometimes they have that certain sort of innate wisdom. Uh, sometimes they're mocking their own accent and their own voice and their own dialect. So um, there's a, lots of Anok and Ali. So I started telling Anok and Ali stories as well. And they're, they're very good for a folk club because they last a minute or two. You know, they're not a 12, 15 minute story in a folk club. So the Enoch and Eli stories were a perfect vehicle for me, really. Now, the Enoch and Eli stories are a key part of Graham's storytelling sets, and he told them often at our events in Birmingham. I asked him if he'd be happy to share a few of them with you. Okay, well, um, in the black country, there's a couple of characters named Enoch and Eli. In fact, what I'm going to do to start with, I'm going to do your little recitation. And you know, we talked about when I was in the folk club. Well, this was a recitation that somebody else in the folk club used to do. It goes like this. It's a long, long while since Fussy's tale was told. Yo laugh your eyes out when you've heard it, like Enoch did of old. Two blokes were sanking down our streets. With two fighting dogs they eyed. They stuck them in an empty butt to fight it quietly out inside. Now yo can fight your heart's content and each stood by to listen. As gonna have a bet, says one, they'll tell me, bist or bissom. They placed their bets a while. The clattering that butt was chronic while the thrills they got from that there fight. It were better than a doctor's tonic. But then at last, all silence reigned, and each man looked at t'other. They lift the lid, an empty butt. Them dogs, they'd eaten one another. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, used to, I, I heard, at that time I heard several black country recitations, but I've never been able to find them. I've never went seeking for them seriously, but the, the, there was a great one that a, a bloke called Steve Lyons did, called the Babbage 21, and it was just great, but I've, I've never been able to find it since. Anyway, Anok and Aline, these two working blokes in the black country, worked down the mines for some time. And in fact, it was Enoch's job to look after the pit ponies. Anyway, one day, Eli came along the tunnel, and there's Enoch with his heavy pick 
picking and chipping away at the roof of the tunnel. And Alok says, what are you doing, Alok? And Alok says, oh, I've got these new pit ponies, and one of them's too big, it's too tall, and it won't go through the tunnel. So I'm picking away at the roof to make a bit of space. So Alok says, young fool, he says, why don't you pick away at the floor and make it easier for yourself? And then Knox says, well, you're the fool. It's his ears that will go through. <laughs> and I'm really pleased you're laughing at these jokes because <laughs> there are two responses to Enoch and Eli jokes. One is to laugh or, to, or, or maybe to smile a little and the other one is to groan. And, and either is perfectly acceptable. Um, and there's another story about Enoch and Eli and horses because they, um, they, ha- they had a, a, a bet on. Uh, they've had a roll-up at the bookies, and they've been successful, and they'd won. They'd won quite a lot of money. Now, these two working blokes, they didn't need very much in life, and so they're wondering what to spend the money on. And they thought, well, since we won the money on the horses, uh, why don't we buy a horse? Wouldn't that be great? Wouldn't that be great if we had a horse? So they went to Dudley Market to buy a horse, and actually, with the money they've got, they've got enough money to buy two horses, so they brought them back, and they got this bit of grass. Uh, it wasn't very green. It was in between the start, the tar distillery and the, and the steel works and the cut. Uh, and uh, nevertheless, they had tethered up their horses on this grass, on this rather grey-looking grass. Uh, and then they began to say uh, to each other, well, how are we going to know? How are we going to know which is your horse and which is my horse? You know, uh, we, should, we should have some sort of markings on them. And they talked about that for a bit, then they walked along the cut towpath until they came to the pub and they had a few drinks and and discussed it with the people in the pub who were all eager to give them their ideas about marking the hooves or, you know, all sorts of things. Anyway, late into the night, it was decided that the thing to do would be to cut half the tail off one of the horses. Then they would be instantly recognisable. So, in the dark, they went into the field and they cut half the tail off one of the horses. Anyway, the following morning, they were hot shot and eager to get up to visit their livestock. So they went up to the field and, you know, following after them in the night, some bright spark had come along and cut half the tail off the other horse. Now what we're going to do, says Eli, I'll tell you what, says Aina, you have the black one and I'll have the white one. <laughs> Enoch had got this new pair of working boots. I mean, these were like, you know, really heavy leather boots. And you couldn't wear them really straight away. You had to, you had to wear them in. You'd rub them with dubbing and wear them for an hour at a time until they softened up a little bit and were fit to wear. Anyway, um, so Enoch had got these new boots and he took a walk down the towpath to the pub, uh, had a few drinks, had a skinful. Came back along the towpath, blind drunk, fell into the cut, soaking wet, boots drenched, got home, uh, thinking, I'll go dry these out now. So he put them in the oven on a low gas, wrapped the blankets around it to keep warm, to let his boots dry. But with all the booze, and sitting in front of the warm oven, uh, he went to sleep. And he woke up hours later to the, to the acrid smell of uh, toasting boots. So uh, he took these boots out of the oven 
and they were all twisted and bent and snorkeled and no good for him to wear at all. So, I mean, you know, you couldn't wear those all day at work. So um, he went down the post office and he put a notice, he put a notice in the window um, saying, riding boots for sale. Uh, so anyway, a little bit later, there's a knock on the door and this gent was there saying, uh, hello, my man, I understand you have a pair of riding boots for sale. I said, right to say, not come on in. And so he showed this bloke this pair of boots. But he said, my man, those aren't riding boots. No, well, you'll try walking the buggers. <laughs> okay, one more? Yeah. Okay, yep. one more. Now, Enoch had a son, and his name was Enoch. And one day, old Enoch comes to his son and says, Enoch, he says, did you shove the privy in the cut last night? Because they'd have had a house with a long garden and an outside privy at the bottom of the garden. There must have been a cut at the bottom. Did you shove the privy in the cut last night? And little Anox says, uh, no, father, it won't me. I don't do it. Now, um, old Anox, he thought of himself as a little bit of a child psychologist. He knew how kids worked. And he says, uh, listen here, Anox, he says, I want to tell you a story. Out in America, there was this little boy named George Washington. Now, one day, his father came to him and says, and George, he says, did you chop the cherry tree down? Now, George Washington looked at his father and he says, Father, I can't tell you a lie. It was me what done it. And, you know, that little boy didn't get a good idea. He didn't get a strapping or anything. And he grew up to be President of America. Now, did you understand that story, Enoch? Yes, Father. Right, I'm going to ask you again. Did you shove the privy in the cup last night? And the little boy looked up at his father. He says, I can't tell you a lie, Father. It was me that done it. And so Enoch took off his belt and gave the lad a good strap in. And the lad, is, little Enoch, is blarting and crying and the snot and tears all over his face. He said, but Father, George Washington didn't get a good idea. No. Well, George Washington's father wasn't sitting in the cherry tree at the time. They, uh, they're not unique to the black country, but they are... The, the, the fact that you've got these two... You know the Nazaruddin stories? Uh, From the Near East, the character yes. called Nazaruddin or the Hodja, the Hodja. Um, uh, in some ways, that's similar to that, you know. But the the Hodge Nazruddin is a single person. Here we've got Enoch and Eli. But in Wales, you've got um, you've got like um, quite often it's sort of, you know, three Welshmen, you know, that sort of thing. The Tudor period, I think there was uh, again there's similar kind of stories, but they were about uh, a particular village is the myth. Yeah. The men from Gotham or something oh, yeah, like that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, you see, this, uh, across Europe, there, there, there's, there's, there's a whole series of Jewish stories about the, um, from, from, from Kelm, the, the, the wise men of Kelm, and then there's the wise men of Gotham. That last story comes out of the, um, out of the traditional, uh, out of the Birmingham and Midland Folk Centre archive. So it would have been collected during that period when, when we were in the folk club and all that sort of stuff, because we were very busy mm. with all of that work, that sort of work, and a whole bunch of us 
uh, were, were collecting stuff and organising stuff and performing stuff. And uh, someone collected that, that story, collected a little series of A Knock and Outlaw stories, actually. Yeah. Um, and uh, they're, they're good fun. I enjoy, I enjoy telling them. I enjoy telling them. Uh, but uh, um, I don't, I don't, I, I don't do as much performing as I used to. Uh, and I don't always do the A Knock and Outlaw stories. But the great thing about the A Knock and Outlaw stories, really, for me, in a way, is it locates me geographically, do you know what I mean? Mm. And co- locates me geographically and culturally. Yeah. So once I've done a little bit, bit of that, I think it's quite good because it, 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 it like sustains my identity in a way because they're culturally close to me. Mm. Uh, so that's, that's how it started. I asked Graham whether there was a moment when he began to think of himself specifically as a storyteller. I mean, looking back on that now, it, it's very interesting about your life in a way because you are what you call yourself, you know. So um, um, I continued to tell stories because I went to be a teacher, I went to be a drama teacher. And in my life as a drama teacher, I found that actually, you know, kids would really listen to me if I was telling a story. So especially when I was doing things like cover lessons, I would tell stories. So by the time I'd been teaching for 20 years, I had a dozen or 15 really well-worked stories. And then I was really ill, so I stopped teaching. I had to stop teaching. And as I recovered and started looking around for uh, some uh, new work to do, I actually started doing some freelance drama sessions in schools. But I was becoming more and more interested in the storytelling, um, and so I would I would take what the workshop I was doing in a school and I would work it around storytelling, and then it was in Sheffield that was the real turning point for me. Actually, it was in Sheffield when a club opened, Tales, Lies, and Stories. It was called something as simple as that, and what. During my recovery, actually, I was, it wasn't working there, and this club launched, and I was visiting a friend in Sheffield, and she got an, a, a flyer for it on her kitchen notice board. So I went along, and it was great fun, great su- success, and I started off that first night telling one of my Anok and Eli stories, uh, and uh, I, was, I was still not very strong physically or emotionally at that time. But anyway, that grew and grew and grew. I launched a little thing in Scunthorpe, where I live, called um, um, Total Tales, uh, in a windmill um, that had been converted into a pub. A um, few other people gathering around me. and we did them. So this, is, this was in North Lincolnshire, in Scunthorpe, uh, near where I used to teach. Uh, and then it just grew and grew and grew. And uh, then, I, you know, uh, I started promoting myself and doing more storytelling. And, um, and then I went on a, on a three-week course at Emerson College on storytelling. After I'd done that, I had a flyer made that said, Graham Langley Storyteller. And that was the first time I actually called myself a storyteller. So that's what I'm saying. What you call yourself, in a way, is what you are. And I think once I give myself that name and said, I am a storyteller, then I became a storyteller, not just someone who did stories. 
and I asked Graham to share his views about why the storytelling tradition is important, what makes it so powerful as a tool for expression and as an experience for the audience. Well, I mean, I think you hit the nail on the head there about the people who come to listen to me. Because I think what's important for me is is the people who are there listening to my story. Um, on the occasions when I've worked in a theatre space that's where, and where the, where the platform has been overlit and the audience has been in the dark and I haven't had an audience to, to, to actually locate with my eyes, they're there somewhere in the darkness, do you know what I mean? So for me, the thing about storytelling is two, is two things. One is the stories, and I only tell traditional stories, and they are, you know, they work again and again and again in so many different circumstances and in, in so many, uh, 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 with so many twists and turns of meaning. So the stories are absolutely vital to me, and the audience is also, like, part, an essential part of what I'm doing. One area that Graham has done a lot of work in is hospitals, with children who are often seriously ill. I asked him what the role of a storyteller is in that situation, and what kind of impact he thinks storytelling has on the children. Uh, I've just come back from a conference with, um, with some storytellers who work in children's hospitals, uh, and our experience is very, very similar. We work with sometimes with severely poorly children. We work with children who have been traumatised, uh, with children who have had long-term illnesses, or children who are nervous or frightened about where they are. And I... Uh, I go to I, I probably I go to bedside. I take to bedside. Hello, little kid. Uh, I'm grandma. I'm going to tell you a story. And I sometimes I've got some knowledge about the child, and uh, I choose a particular story to tell. And I've got very little time to think about this. Hopefully, I'm going to get the right sort of story. Um, and I mean, I just cannot tell you the number of times that have been you know, magical. And not just for me, for those stories that I do this work. Most of whom are using traditional stories, some of whom are not. Um, but we go and the relationship between me and this child or these children, sometimes it's two or more children, um, the relationship between me and the story that I tell, you know, and sometimes it can be deeply moving. One thing is, without any question, the calming effect that stories have on children in hospitals. You know, pro child who is agitated, say goodbye to his child with a smile on his face. I, I don't, and I don't, to be honest with you, I don't even know how that happens. I don't even, I couldn't say to you, okay, Rich, what are you going to do? You go there, you do this, you do this, you do this, you do this, and you come away happy. I don't know how it happens. You know, partly to do with choosing the story, partly to do that big thing. There's a huge thing in, in, in performance. There's a huge thing in telling a story, which is about intention. Your intention 
as a performer in that moment of the story. And that, that, that intention could be very much about the story, it could be very much about the audience, but constantly you've got this changing intention. You may have an overriding intention, because that's the particular story, and I might have an overriding intention when I approach a child, but something about my intention, my choice of the story, how and where I'm calm and and uh, uh, and, and carry the thing forward slowly, or how and where I'm jokesy, I'm smiling, and do some little thing. You know, some intention in me says that I want to make this child smile at this moment, or here's an opportunity for, for to make a smile. But it's the same. It's, it's it's exactly the same in front of any audience. You know, there you are, and you've got some audience who are only feet from you. You know, and for some reason in the story, you just make this little side because it's just the moment that you can tickle the audience's fancy with some little comment to make them smile. Even if this is in something that might otherwise be considered a serious story, do you know what I mean? Mm. Just because it is a so-called, because it's a, it's a more heavy-duty story, doesn't mean there can't be some humour in it as well. And I think that's what happens with children in hospital. You recognise a need and you just, and you have that intention to fulfil that need at that moment and you've got that great vehicle. You've got that stunningly brilliant vehicle, which is a folktale, say. But a stunningly brilliant vehicle is folktale. Here's a child lying in hospital with all the anxieties around that. And just for the, just for the period of time that they're listening to my stories, I'm taking them away from that. And in their imagination, I'm taking them to a different set of experiences. I'm not taking them to a different place, but I'm taking them to a different set of experiences. And their mind is taken to a different set of experiences, which are not the ones that are experiencing in reality. Now, I'm not their imagination. It's their imagination that takes them there. And it's my story that enables them to go there. Graham and Pam's traditional arts team has done a lot of work bringing folk music and folk story to audiences all around the Midlands, but much of the time has also been spent organising training and workshops where practitioners of folk music and traditional storytelling can pass on their skills to new performers. One of the unique things about my time in Birmingham was how their work created a whole ecosystem of opportunities for storytellers who could train at workshops attend regular clubs, perform at monthly and seasonal events and join the team as they collaborated in programmes arranged with city and heritage groups throughout the region. I asked Graham if this was part of a conscious effort to develop and sustain a culture of storytelling in the Midlands. Oh, absolutely so. Oh yes, absolutely so. I mean, uh, 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 because of this great love of the traditional song, the traditional music, uh, and traditional storytelling. Um, uh, yeah, we wanted to bring it back to life, develop it, you know, uh, the storytelling, uh, uh, these art forms get revived um, uh, periodically. Uh, and uh, the latest storytelling revival or regeneration uh, as, as, as beginning to decline now 
But nevertheless, I think, yeah, I've been, we've been part, the Trad Arts team, me and the Trad Arts team, have very much been part of, uh, the, uh, of maintaining and developing and promoting the idea of the traditional arts as part of people's lives. Mm. Be- because it's no chance that these stories have lasted thousands of years. It's not, that's not a chance. There's something in them, something compelling, something essential, humanly essential that are in those stories and that people recognise intuitively without necessarily understanding what's happening, but intuitively they recognise the situation, they recognise the circumstance, they recognise the emotion, they recognise the conflict, etc. Um... And uh, and those things are in all of us, and those are the things that are core things in the stories. No, they're just stories. They're just vehicles. We, you know, and you make. I might tell a story because I hear, I heard. There's a story I heard that I, as a festival, this storytelling session as a festival. And I was sitting next to a woman who told this story. And I thought, oh, that's a great story. And I said, that's how I told She said, yeah. And she told me where she got it from. And I started telling it. And, and uh, it had a really good impact on some people uh, who, 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 who discussed that with me. But then when I read the story from the book, and I read the commentary that the, author, the writer had, um, had, had included, uh, it didn't resemble my view of the story at all, <laughs> you know. So we each take something different. I can't tell you what to find in the story. I might find something in the story, and I that would then inform my delivery of the story. Uh, you may pick up what I'm expecting you to pick up, or you might go ding. <laughs> And something else happens to you because there's something, and there's another layer there in that story. Uh, I've given up a lot of my work now. Uh, it's partly to do with energy. Uh, going into a school for a day, uh, that's a high energy business and it's too exhausting for me. And, and, and even the work in the hospitals now, I've given up a lot. I've, I work in hospitals, I'm doing less of now. Um, but I do still have the training group. Uh, I'm not, do- I'm doing very little production work, but, I- but I do still have the training group, which we call Storytelling Gymnasium. And, um, uh, I've probably run the last of my beginners and my moving on workshops. Um, and I don't run Storytelling Cafe anymore, although we do have a session called Tales and Ales. But, I mean, as you know, it was a really good mix because beginners' workshops and then people would move on a little bit, then they'd come to Storytelling Gymnasium on a regular basis and that would build up their skills and they would try things out at Tales and Ales and then get the opportunity for a floor spot at Storytelling Cafe. So there was a whole progressive cycle of activity and then we would set up our own events as well. Uh, because I've given up the cafe and given up various other things, that, that full package is, isn't there at my fingertips anymore. But nevertheless, we do still run, te- uh, uh, 
storage gymnasium, which you would re- you'd step back into it very, very quickly and very, very easily because uh, I, I have a process of revisiting subjects and topics, vocal work and, and emotional work, etc. Revisiting again and again. Each time, people picking up more, developing it more, uh, and uh, it's. I think the training will probably be the uh, the last thing I give up um, because uh, it's 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 very fruitful. I mean, if you look across the Midlands now, a large number of people have been running who are run, who are currently running events across the Midlands have been through our training process on one level or another mm. not necessarily necessarily starting as beginners but on, on one level or another they've been through our training process so you know nottingham derby matlock uh, stafford leicestershire all over people who've been through our training are are running events across the midlands even though we're not running so many events other people are I asked Graham what he believed was distinctive about storytelling as a traditional art and practice and what he wanted to pass on to new storytellers. Well, I, I think, for me, I have to realise where my story, where my storytelling stands in the, con- in the continuing process of storytelling. You know, this is not something that started in the 1970s or the 1980s. It's not something that became popularised in the 90s. Uh, uh, it's something that goes back hundreds, thousands of years and, and all around the world and in different places in the world. Sometimes the storyteller is telling to, uh, has been telling to an audience. I think in Britain, the experience of um, a storyteller telling to something that we would think of as resembling an audience today has been quite rare for quite a long time and while it may have appeared in little patches in the past it's never been a consistent thing the audience has been family friends a social environment uh, in the home in the workplace that's where stories have been exchanged and that's where that that person who became a uh, a, 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 a natural quality of being a storyteller uh, would find his audience there, and uh, and Uncle Fred every Christmas would tell the same story within the family <laughs> gathering, and that was fine because because not only did Uncle Fred tell that story, uh, little Sophie who was listening also learnt that story, and also learnt the manner in which the story was told. Now, those social circumstances for telling the stories not only passed on the stories, but passed on quite a lot of process and relationship. So when we move that onto a platform, and now instead of telling in a social atmosphere, or, or I might be telling to, or, or, or telling to people that I know, I'm, I'm almost certainly being telling to story people that I don't know. So um, here's this audience of people that I don't know, and here's me, the storyteller. Now, who am I? Well, I'm Graham Langley. You know, I don't need to pretend to be anybody else. I'm Graham Langley, and, and so I tell my stories as authentically as I can to who I am. There was a period of time when I became like 
a professional brummie. Right. You know, <laughs> so, yeah, so they'll, so they'll say, I overdid the Birmingham accent and all that sort of thing, you know what I mean? So that was, I went through that, uh, and I think that was when I was trying to find my feet, find my voice, find my confidence. Um, uh, but most of what I do in the telling of my story is coming through me. It's not an imitation of someone else. This is my behaviour, it's my voice, it's my emphasis, and it's my relationship with this group of people who are in front of me, with their children or adults or a mixed family group. Um, uh, so I don't need to... Um, there doesn't need to be any pretense about who or what I am. And there doesn't need to be any pretense about the feelings in the story because the feelings are coming directly from me. Mm. Um, and I think that creates an authentic uh, voice. Uh, I'm no longer a professional Brahmi, <laughs> uh, but, but I do carry, um, I do carry, I know that I carry a lot of emotion within me. I, mean, I, I was a drama teacher, I studied drama, I was a drama teacher, I did lots of, of, of work of that sort. I know about Stanislavski, I know about Brecht, I know about Laban. So there's lots of technique that I know of from, from other art forms. You know, I've been a folk singer, I've worked with this, uh, this relationship with, an, with a small audience, uh, and I bring those things into my performance as a storyteller. And I bring those things into my relationship with an audience. And if I try to introduce any sort of falsehood into that, then for me the whole thing would break down. Go back to what I said a little earlier about the audience being so important and the stories being so important. Um, uh, if you've got faith in the story, then... You don't need necessarily... I don't need to be an actor, for instance. You know, I don't need to uh, adopt a character for a few moments. I might, in my physicality, give a little bit of an impression of age or boldness or anger. You know, just in my physical position. Um, but once I've, once I've signaled that up, I don't then need to stay in character. You know, I, f I flag it up because it's coming through me. The, the, the desire to, to communicate, the desire to communicate, I think, has got to be really, really important. So that desire to communicate the moment in the story, but I don't need to l let it linger. Do you see that sometimes? Do you see storytellers trying to be actors or when there's more stage about it than that there is kind of uh, a circle of friends. As I said earlier, the stories themselves are very powerful. And the traditional stories, and the myths and the legends and the folk tales, are very powerful. And so people in other art forms, ballet, uh, theatre, children's theatre, poetry, they look at the this traditional folk art form and realise how powerful it is and take and take it into their own art form. Um, now, it's only fairly recently that people have begun to realise 
just how much of an art form storytelling is. So, in a, in a way, it's still in its infancy. This ancient art form is still in its infancy as we learn how to bring it onto the platform and we learn the relationship, this new relationship that storytelling can have with an audience, genuine storytelling with an audience from a platform to a seated audience. Um, where people are taking the strength and the power of the stories, but not having faith in the process, and they need to dress it up. You know, they need to feel as if they need to put some extra scaffolding around it, and, and extra costume, and extra voice, and uh, um, all sorts of extras, because they don't have the faith and the confidence in the story itself. So they feel they need all of this extra stuff. That they can, or they want to take the strength of storytelling and bring it into their own art form. Because, um, because frankly, there's, as a solo storyteller in a space with a bunch of people in front of you, and you're going to create everything. You're going to create the characters. You're going to create the, 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 the set. You're going to, you're going to tra take that audience on an emotional journey. And it's just you standing there in front of them. Now, if you don't have faith in that, then you bolster it with a lot of other stuff. Mm. And in, I, I'm, I'm not... I'm not saying that, that that is necessarily a bad thing, but equally I'm, I'm, I would suggest it's not necessarily a good thing if what you're doing is to try to develop the art form of storytelling. Because what you're doing actually is avoiding the art of storytelling. So really in answer to your question, have I seen storytelling where... where, where storytelling has become lost and glossed over by a lot of other things, yes. And I've done a lot of production work. You know, I used to do over a 100 events a year over a period of years, uh, producing, not necessarily performing in all of them, performing in some of them, and quite often comparing some of them, or quite often telling stories. I think it benefited me a lot to be telling two or three stories in a night where there was another guest performer. Um, and and uh, more and more, I see people uh, having less faith in their personal capacity as a storyteller. Or rather than entering into that uncomfortable zone where you bear yourself in front of an audience as you enter into some deep emotional moment that is not just a deep emotional moment within the story, it's a deep emotional moment within you as a performer. And uh, I think in order to avoid that, more and more there's all singing, all dancing shows, People don't have the faith in the stories, so they mix it up with all sorts of other story work, you know, true stories, uh, um, um, written stories, self-composed stories, 
and so the platform is become, becoming confused and the whole world of storytelling is becoming muddy. So I think, I think, I, I think at the bottom of that, as I say, is these people who just don't have faith in the stories and are actually afraid to expose themselves to, 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 to what's really going on. For a team dedicated to communicating traditional arts, I asked Graham about what he thought defined traditional storytelling against the other forms and brands of storytelling that are out there at the moment. I think it's a great pity in some ways that the movement of the 70s, 80s, 90s, when storytelling, the term term storytelling was coined, and people started referring to themselves as storytelling, prior to that, at, at, at the Greycock Folk Club, when me and several other people told so there was one person there, she, she wasn't a singer, but she did start telling stories. But no one ever referred to her as a storyteller. It was just someone who told stories. Then the term was coined, and it became understood amongst people who were exploring the art of storytelling, recognising that it was a separate art, and finding a new audience for it, and that happened, and that, you know, we were achieving quite successful audiences and quite successful events. And other people looked at that and thought, oh, yeah, you know, I wouldn't mind a slice of that. And so that's when they started referring to what they did as storytelling. So that's someone who was a writer, who also, who wasn't published, but would like to, a, 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 an audience, could start calling themselves a storyteller. And so a bit, quite quickly, after it became established, it also became usurped and and lost its definition. And I don't think it's unlikely that we can get back to it now. Even within the storytelling world, it's become such a confused, mixed package now that the term, the term storytelling has become vague before it became crystallised. It's, it's, it's sort of interesting because people... Well, you know, I mean, we're, we're all self-interested. As artists, we're all self-interested. And performance artists are seeking a platform and are seeking an audience. Mm. So, you know, they're gonna, they're, people are going to do what, what they need to do to get an audience. And I'm, I'm not ne- necessarily critical... Of those people, are much more critical of people who are, who are in the storytelling world, who then, in a way, uh, refuse to recognise that what else, what, 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 how, how the storytelling world has been undermined. Undermined is perhaps a too strong a word because it sounds deliberate, but that's effectively what's happening. I suppose I hope that buzzwords and trends kind of end. And that the people who are interested in the traditional art of storytelling will keep plodding on with it after that. Well, you see, <laughs> if I was to try to manipulate something now, if I was to take myself back 25 years and, and, find, myself, or, or, and find myself in this situation now, mm. I think I'd start really working quite hard at, at placing the word traditional in front of the word storytelling. So I'd keep on referring to traditional storytelling, traditional storytelling, traditional storytelling, just to distinguish it from the other um, uh, types of so-called storytelling that have emerged. 
that's that's actually pretty much what we do with this podcast. Yeah. Because storytelling is such a general word now, we refer to traditional storytelling all the time so that people know what we're actually talking about. Well, well that's right, because you know pe- people don't think of where these stories come from. My dad... I mean, the other thing that happened to me, I mean, uh, one of the inroads into stories for me was to start digging back into my past life. Oh, what was that story my dad told me? Oh, what was that story my, 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 um, my scout leader used to tell us? Uh, oh, what was that story I heard on the radio? You know, and so when I needed stories, I started digging back like that. But one of the stories my dad told me the bishop and the gardener, is actually um, a version of a, a much more ancient story. It was written down in about the 13th century or something, um, King Richard and the Archbishop of Canterbury. Um, and But it was written down then. It was an old story even then. Where did my dad get it? Where did my dad get it? I was, he, he, he was dead and gone by the time I was really interested enough to know where he got it from. Where did he get it from? His language was not book language. He didn't get it out of a book. So, uh, so these stories that we hold, these traditional stories, and we've, we've given them that label, traditional stories. <clears throat> these traditional stories um, have have been through the the lip, through the mind, through the ear, and the mind and the lip of thousands of people. For well, you know, with that story, a thousand years. With some stories, more than a thousand years. How is Cinderella everywhere in the world? What sort of slow progress did a story like that take as it wrapped itself around the world, being changed in gender and location and behaviour? No, it's, it's fascinating. It's just completely fascinating. So we've heard a number of stories from Graham in this episode, but this last story is the one that I always think of when I remember Graham's sets. I think of it as being the storyteller's story, one which stands in for our own mythos, a signature for our vocation. This one is called When Truth Met Story. It's a great story. I mean, it comes high, high, high on my list of my favourite stories. I know it's very popular these days to do the bigger and bigger stories, 20 minutes, half an hour, half a day stories. But I think there's something to be said for the short stories. And this story was given to me by a Jewish woman in Sydney, Australia. And it happens in that region, that Palestinian region, to the east of the Mediterranean, Bedouin lands. And um, uh, an old woman was on a journey. She'd been travelling... For days, she'd been travelling for weeks, she'd been travelling for months, she'd been travelling for years. She'd been travelling for the whole of her life. And one day she arrived at the village, and she went in through the little gateway, and she walked up to the first house and she knocked on the door. The door was opened, and the people in the house looked at her, and they shouted at her, they told her to clear off and go away and not come anywhere near them. And they slammed the door in her face. Well, she was really surprised at this because this was a land where hospitality was just the normal thing. It was a renowned thing. But she went to the next house and she knocked on the door there. 
and she was treated in the same way there. House after house after house she went to, and house after house after house she was turned away. Not always shouted at, sometimes more politely, not today, thank you. And sometimes the door was just closed in her face, and people didn't even look her in the eye. Well, after a while she went and she sat near the well in the middle of the village, just wondering about things. And while she sat in there, sitting there, this young guy came through the gateway, tall, elegant, handsome, long flowing hair and a long flowing multicoloured cape that brushed the dust as he walked across the village towards the first house, the same house she'd been to. He knocked on the door, the door was opened up and the people in the house looked at him and they invited him in. They welcomed him in and the woman could hear the sound of laughter and merriment in the house. He left that house, he went to the next house. House after house after house he went to. And house after house, he was invited in. After a while, she called him over. And she said, who are you? Every house you go to, you're welcomed in. But every house that I go to, I'm turned away. Who are you? And the young man smiled. And he said, I am Story. And I am welcome wherever I go. Who are you? And she said, I am truth, and no one wants to know me. And the young man said, well, why don't you travel with me? And he wrapped her up inside his big multicoloured cape, and together they went into the next house. And so you see, that is why, whenever you hear a story, there is always truth in there somewhere. This episode of Lore and Legend comes to you thanks to the contributions of our Patreon subscribers, story folk Christy Carson and Paul Jackson. Thank you to them for their generosity and their enthusiasm for our stories. You've been listening to When Truth Met Story, a guest episode of Lore and Legend with storyteller Graham Langley. I'm extremely grateful to Graham and to Pam, not just for this episode, but for the mentorship, training and many opportunities that they gave me during my time in Birmingham. If you're interested in the work that they're doing in the Midlands or would like to hear about any events or workshops that are running, those links are available in the episode notes and in the blog post and on our website. The Trad Arts team is winding down its activities at the moment, but they can still help you link up with the traditional scene in Birmingham if that's something that you're interested in. The lore and legend theme music in this episode was performed by Robert Bentall. To find out more about episodes of Lore and Legend, you can visit www.loreandlegend.co.uk and check out our episode blog posts. If you like what you hear and you want to hear more, please consider joining Christy and Paul in supporting the podcast by becoming one of our patrons. For more details, visit our website and click support us or go directly to our Patreon page at www.patreon.com forward slash law and legend. Listener support gives financial fuel to our productions and ensures that we can continue to make the best quality content for the podcast and get it out to more people. That's it for now. Look out next month for more from us. We'll continue to bring you more interviews of storytellers over the next few months. You can also look forward to a series of mini-episodes teasing the second season of Lore and Legend, which is called The Gates of Dream. 
Look out for the Dreaming Pit, the dream of Cassandra, the Warlord's dream, and the birth of Hermes, all coming in the next few months. Thanks again for listening, and stay safe out there, story folk.